0: Thank you, Owen. I'm a fan of Owens, too. Not just Jana. No, did you, as you were reading through that, kids, yeah, you're leaving for Sunday school, um, but as, as we're reading through that psalm, do you remember we're going to, to talk about Daniel? Continue on through chapter 6 today, and just as you read that psalm, it's amazing how many images, in terms of the Lord delivering the righteous from trouble, It even talks about lions in that, and it talked about it in one of the songs, and I just, I keep thinking as I'm sitting here, or was thinking as I I was sitting here or singing here this morning, that, you know, I I send out my sermon outline, and this is the passage we're going to be studying, and I don't know how many of you look it over, but it would be such a good thing for us to, you know, sort of look it over at the beginning, and I was thinking as we're singing, man, I've got to maybe start sending out the there's music ahead of time too, at least the titles. And you can maybe look up some of the songs because for me, because I'm coming here like full, like I'm ready to to preach the message. It's just, there's so many things that tie together. There's so many things that, that keep pointing my mind back to, yeah, that is the message for the morning. That is what you're trying to say to us, Lord, because there it is again. It's right there in the message of the song. And it's not always that we're that we're so intent and so successful at weaving this stuff together. The Lord's doing it. And the psalm, the songs, the message, even the, the particular slant as we come to the message, and the Lord brings these things together. So I'm hoping that you understand that as much as I always say, you know, it's not just an academic thing. There is that side of it. In terms of we put the, the work in, we put the effort in, we, we do the study, and we see Christ in the middle of it. We see God speaking to us through our, our focus, through our study. So just that at the beginning, you know, that psalm, it, it just really it was, as, as, as Owen read the introduction, about a time when David was delivered. But we think about that and it applies perfectly to this moment when Daniel is delivered. And, you know, the songs that we've been singing about, uh, just the hope that we have in life or death because of God, he's our eternal hope. He's our forever hope, no matter what. You know, all those things just keep channeling us toward exactly what we have in our our God. And I, I just trust that, As you come here this morning, or as you are joining with us online this morning, that you're feeling encouraged in your relationship, in your walk with the Lord, and that you feel it is worthwhile, the effort, the effort that you put out to study his word, the effort you put out to seek him in prayer, because... That's what it's all about. And I know sometimes we get lazy, don't we? We all do. I get lazy. And while, yeah, just not taking the time I should to pray, I'm not thinking about actively, you know, moving forward in terms of my own spiritual life. Uh, Just sort of content. And I was talking with somebody this morning and just that idea that, you know, it's not it's not that we go and we go, okay, I want to do an evil thing. I want to be bad. I want to be evil. But when we as Christians just sort of sit back and say, you know, I'm not going to seek the Lord. And that's when we're off track. We're, we're going down the wrong road and end up surprised where we find ourselves and we're running around going, okay, where are you, Lord, in all of this? And so anyways, just a, a little encouragement for you. It's not that I don't have a long enough sermon. I'm trying to pack in extra. I did, but I just felt like, you know, we need to be challenged to, to put our minds into this and think about this. And, and, and the Lord is there. So we're in the middle of this story, crown jewel of the book of Daniel Daniel in the lion's den, a uh, story we all know. Um, let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning as we open your word. And we ask, we say, it's your word, Lord, let us in, let us understand what it is that you want to teach us this morning, us as a congregation, us as individuals, we know that because you are God, because you are over all, because you are in all, there are both things going on. There's this, this general message and the details of the application, your spirit is willing to speak to us. So help us, Lord, to do our part. Help us to come before you, confessing that we are sinners, we're in need. We need to hear from you. We need you to even open our minds up to be aware of of those truths that you want to teach us. So lead us along, we pray, in Christ's name and for your sake, Lord. Amen. Well, as we think about this story, this Daniel and the Lion's Den story, it's easy to understand why it's such a big story, why everybody knows about it. Two basic reasons I came up with. Uh, first, if you're looking at it from the side of entertainment, attention-grabbing, entertainment value, it's a combination Nat Geo, Joe Exotic, Court TV, Question Period, in in Parliament, which isn't always so exciting, but Survivor, all wrapped into one. All of those popular, or at one time, popular television shows, it's all that wrapped into one, and so you've got a bit of everything that would catch somebody's eye. You have dangerous animals, legal wrangling, and competition. It appeals to us, doesn't it, this story? Second of all, it includes all of the previous truths taught in all of the previous chapters of Daniel, all in this one story. Daniel reflects, in this story, God's faithfulness, God's graciousness, God's understanding, God's commitment in an exemplary way, in one of the most captivating incidents in the Bible for all ages. For all levels of learning. Everybody can, can identify or wants to identify or wants to understand and listen to this story. It is both a blunt story that it's like, there's the truth. And then it's nuanced. There, there are little subtle messages all the way through it. It is a spectacle. But in it, there is spectacular truth. And God does this sometimes. God does this, I say sometimes, because a lot of times it seems like God is subtly involved in what's going on in history, in what's going on around us in the day-to-day, but there are times when God comes in, boom, in a big way, and, and we cannot miss it, or we shouldn't miss it, unless, of course, we're trying to suppress the truth, and we know that happens, doesn't it? We know in Romans chapter 1, it talks about creation. Creation displays the glory of God. And we look at creation and we call it the natural world. It's never been the natural world. It's always been the supernatural world. Because there was space and God created something in that space. So by definition, it is a supernatural world. But it says in Romans chapter 1 that people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They go, no, this is all normal. Mother Nature made this. Why? Well, because they don't want to respond to the fact that there is a God overall. That would be too much work. And it takes away my power, doesn't it? My autonomy, my ability to say, I'm going to do whatever I want. But you know, it's not just the people out there in the world that that go through this, is it? That suppress truth so that they can have autonomy and don't have to work hard and think hard about life. Sometimes people in evangelical churches like this one here suppress truth. Sometimes guys who stand behind the pulpits in evangelical churches like this one suppress truth, don't they? Because truth pushes us to respond and to act and to do things that maybe we don't want to do. <laughs> It'd be too much work, wouldn't it, to obey God. And if I think about God and if I, if I draw near to God, I know I'm going to be challenged to, Steve, change this in your life. Steve, Christianity is not some armchair religion where you sit back and just enjoy the ride here. There are things you're going to be called upon to do, to change about you, your heart. And so we need to realize if we're not changing, if we're not growing, we're actually suppressing truth. We're ignoring truth. Truth that God has made clear. And sometimes, like in this story of Daniel, it's in a very bold and blunt and impossible to miss way. But it's not just the the effort and the work that we need challenged about. We need to be challenged from the positive side and say, if we miss this, if we don't focus in, if we don't listen for God in this story, what are we going to miss what are you and I going to miss in terms of God's desire to come close, to work in and through your life? So far, we've seen how Daniel rises to a place of power as a new pagan regime takes over. The Medes and the Persians, Darius the Mede is the, the, the ruler who comes in his Son-in-law Cyrus is the main ruler at that same time. But Darius is the one who is co-regent. Again, we have that that term co-regent where there are two kings and he's over Babylon. And Daniel rises to power even though there is this whole regime change. And it's not through political craft or aggressive maneuvers, but it's because of his righteousness. Righteousness. Because of his goodness. Because of his willingness to do what is right for the benefit of others. Oh, wait a minute. That sounds like a pretty Christian uh, value. How on earth does that work in a pagan regime? But you think about it, doesn't it work? We even can work in the world today. You know the truth, Sermon on the Mount truth that that Jesus said to his, well, it wasn't actually Sermon on the Mount. It was directly to his disciples when they were arguing about greatness. And he said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you must be the servant of all, right? That's how the kingdom of God works. But do you know that same principle can work in the world today in, in situations that aren't at all Christian? I'm talking about where you work. <laughs> if you're a servant, what happens usually? The people who are over you go, wow, I like this person. They do what I say. They're interested in helping other people. They're a willing person, and they do a good job. They're, they don't go, oh, they're righteous. <laughs> but they go, that person is a good worker. That, one, that person's a good corporate citizen. And so we see this principle that God gave or that the Lord gave, Jesus gave to his disciples. You want to be great in the kingdom? In this little realm here or the kingdom of God? Be a servant. And we know how that can work to our benefit in this day and age as we serve other people. People go, I like that. I like that. That person who does a good job there, they're always, they're a benefit to everybody. But it doesn't always work, does it? It doesn't always work when we're a servant. Because sometimes we get kind of trampled on. Sometimes people despise us because they go, why do they appreciate that guy so much or that girl so much? And they realize it's because we submit and, and serve, but they're not willing to take that route themselves, but they wish they were appreciated. You know. And so sometimes, and this is what was going on here, not just in, in some company, in some factory or some work situation that we're familiar with. This was the empire of the day. (laughs) Same things going on. We don't escape these sort of interpersonal things, whatever level we're working on. And these truths apply. And so we understand that being a servant can have positive effects, but it doesn't always. And sometimes it, it actually causes problems with others, but... When has something working out well for us been the criteria for whether we do it or not? The Lord tells us, be a servant, doesn't he? Serve others, love people, work for the benefit of... And so we do it, whether or not it works out well, whether or not it gets us a promotion or, or recognition. We just go forward and, and we do it, whether or not people are trying to, to tear us down or attack us, our confidence is in the Lord. He's our living hope. We just sang about it, talks about that in the psalm, that the Lord will protect the righteous, no matter what. Will we go through some hard times? We're being dragged along there by our foot through the gravel, In some sort of a situation, we'll feel, God, this doesn't feel like protection. But in the end, he's got us. He's going to care for us. He promises that, and we've seen it in our own lives in many different ways. And so we know our job is to respond righteously, even to rabid resentment. And we carry on doing what we're supposed to do. The highest thing that we're supposed to do. The most important thing that we are supposed to do. We carry on doing it. And what is it? It's worshiping God. It's worshiping the Lord through our lives. Through the things that we do. Through our work. Through our our home life. We live, live in fellowship with him. We honor him even under threat, loss of position, paycheck, loss of paycheck, I should say, persecution. And that's what Daniel did. And that was sort of the uh, the beautiful thing in chapter 6, verse 10. It says, when Daniel knew the document had been signed, the one that said, you can pray to nobody but King Darius, he went to his house where He had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before the God as he had done previously. And I think that's a key thing. This was his righteous routine, this was the thing that he did. He was faithful, he was consistent. He persevered. He, I mean, this was his, his, it wasn't like, oh, you're going to say I can't pray? Well, <laughs> I'm going to start praying. It wasn't that rebellious thing that, yeah, even Christian people can have. They get our back up. You're not going to tell me what to do. No, this was just him doing, him doing what he had always done to honor God. And, and so we see this rock-solid, righteous responsibilities he carries on. And we think, what could be gained from doing that? How can it glorify God? To what extent will that glorify God? Because it seems like, I mean, in the moment, he could be saying, well, God, if I get snuffed out, who's going to be the testimony here for you in this place? There are very few people. We get the idea that. Very few Jews in exile in this situation in Babylon, now Medo-Persia, who were living and honoring God. And and so we would be right there with Daniel going, No, Daniel, you should stop praying because who's going to glorify you if you get tossed into the lions? And as I was studying this and reading this and thinking this, I, I thought of a New Testament equivalent. And this is Sermon on the Mount stuff. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let your light shine so that others would see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. It doesn't say, and everything will turn out okay. Nothing bad will happen to you. No, it's the statement that Jesus gives us to just keep doing what we should be doing to, and we'll see, it's living in relationship with him. So let's continue on in the story. We're going we're gonna to start in reading at verse 14. And it says, Then the king, when he heard these words, he was much distressed. Well, what words? They said, you know that law you just made? Well, Daniel's disobeying it, and he should go to the lion's den. He set his mind to deliver Daniel. He was intent. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. I can imagine the argumentation, the legal wrangling, the trying to find some loophole, some way around throwing Daniel into the lion's den. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to him, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, Daniel was brought and cast into the lion's den. And the king declared to Daniel, may your God who you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid in the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and he spent the night fasting no diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Now we know, we know that the king leaned heavily on Daniel. He relied on him, his, his governance, for governance of the kingdom. In uh, the first, we realize that or in the first of the chapter, it says that Daniel was set up as as one of three over the 120 satraps or governors. Daniel was one of three. And the king, it says in verse 3 of chapter 6, he had decided, I'm going to put Daniel over everybody. So I don't know if he was going to put another one in the three and put Daniel over them, or if he was just going to wipe out the three top guys and say, okay, Daniel, you're the one who's... But he had decided to say, no, Daniel's going to run the show. I mean, probably a good deal for him. He's the king. He can hold the power. He can have the position. But this guy's going to do all the work. This guy's the mind that's going to run the place. And he was perfectly confident in Daniel because he was a righteous man. He was a good man. He was a a servant. He knew he could be trusted. But you know, the whole feeling you get in this is not that he was just a guy who was doing the work that he's going, yeah, I want to keep this guy around. But you get the idea that he liked him too. Talks in verse 14 and verse 18 about him being distressed. And you get this idea from some of the things he's saying. That it's not just, wow, I'm going to lose a good worker. It's hard to hang on to those good workers, you know. You keep getting killed and stuff. No, he was distressed that he was going to lose his right hand man who it seems he had some affection for. And this is, this is the double-edged sword when we lose somebody that we both love and lean on. you can miss somebody because of your affection, but you may not miss, I mean, they weren't a lot, they were just, they're a nice person to have around. And then somebody, you might not have a lot of affection for them, but you knew they were good help to you. But, but if it's both of those things, somebody you loved and you leaned on and you lose them, man, that, that hurts. And that was the situation that this guy was in. But you know, he was the guy who pronounced that judgment. He was the guy who put him into the lion's den. And you go, kudos to those other politicians. They knew what they were doing. They were devious and they strategized and they hemmed him in so tightly that there was no way That he could save David and lose faith, or without losing faith, he was the one in the end going, yeah, to the lion's den. It sort of reminds me of that situation. Remember with uh, David and Nathaniel. Remember when David took the other man's wife, was guilty, and was sort of wallowing along in his. His guilt and trying to run a kingdom. And then God sends Nathaniel the prophet to him. And Nathaniel spins this whole tale of how one man, rich man, who has thousands of sheep, steals the one sheep from that poor guy who only has one sheep and takes it for himself and kills it for, I think he kills it and feeds it to somebody else. And, and Daniel was enra- or David was enraged by that story. And he goes, that guy's got to pay. Well, they did the same sort of thing. I mean, they built the whole thing so that, first of all, Daniel would get in trouble for praying. And then they came and they said to the king, well, you know, there's somebody who's been praying. And they've not been following the injunction that you made. And, and they're guilty. And, and they built him up. And the king goes, well, that person needs to go to lion's den. Before he realized or knew, they were talking about Daniel. So they got the king to pronounce the judgment, and then he go, well <laughs> the name is Daniel. So now how is he going to backpedal? And so they were smart in an evil sort of way. It's always easy for us to be smart or to, to be evil, isn't it? Seems like you have people who can't think their way out of a paper bag. But if there's some way that we're evilly going to gain something, we seem to be able to figure it out. And these guys, yeah, they they had it all figured out. They, they roped the king in. They brought him into this situation where he ended up casting judgment on someone else. And, well, in David's case, he didn't realize he was accusing himself. In this case, the king was accusing Daniel. Somebody who he didn't want to accuse. There's another little lesson in there for us. God presents to us stories like this all the time in other people. And what do we do? That person's guilty. That person should be condemned. If I only had a lion's den, they'd be in it. But that's a story that God's telling us that usually has some way of reflecting back on us, doesn't it? Rarely will we come across the sin of another person that we're not participating in in some way ourselves, right? Or that we're not tempted in that way. And so as we we hear these stories of other people's guilt... Just a warning and just an encouragement because this is something that will help us grow. When we hear of somebody else doing something wrong and we're ready to cast the first stone, think about it. How Could I be participating or how am I participating in that same sin? Maybe in a whole different area. Or how can I be helping that brother or sister in Christ with what they're dealing with? How can I come alongside? What is my responsibility in this? It's always great to to bring it around and say, Lord, you're telling me this story. You're allowing me to be aware of this. You're, You're communicating this truth to me. Or this this situation to be, what do I need to fix up? What do I need to do? And it'll be transformative for our lives and and for us as a, a Christian community, I'm sure. But it's interesting that the king's trapped in this distressing situation. And it leads him to cry out almost prayerfully, listen to these words, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Sounds like a prayer, doesn't it? The pagan king yelling that out. May your God, who you serve continually, deliver you. And I wonder, does he really believe that there can be deliverance? You're listening to the words of what he's saying, and you're going, Does does he believe there's a possibility? Or is this just something, a formal thing that he would be saying, you know, for a a religious man of that time? Can there be deliverance? And another question from the divine perspective, for the sake of God's glory, listen to this, is it even necessary? For God's sake, is it necessary that Daniel be delivered? You probably didn't talk about this when you did this story in Sunday school, did you? Is it necessary that Daniel be delivered? I was thinking about that this week. This is an important question because we're led to think about how God works in the world. You see, God's glory is sort of a a foolproof, fail-safe sort of thing. God's glory will be seen in every situation. God is overall, God is sovereign, and God has set things up. So his glory is going to be seen. It's guaranteed. Now, this is not to say that we are assured of getting glory in this life, this isn't to say that everything's going to turn out well for us all the time. But God and his truth will shine. And think about what would happen if Daniel got tossed into the lion's den right at this point in time and the lions chowed down. God's glory would be seen. The king and the kingdom would go on. But they'd be hobbled with the loss of Daniel right? Daniel's the guy who's, who's running the show. The king is sort of going, wow, all responsibility. This guy knows what he's doing. Everything is, is, is functioning well. It's firing on all cylinders. And then Daniel's gone. And they're left to struggle along under greedy, morally bankrupt politicians maybe that would be the greater lesson, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be a clear lesson and a constant reminder of God's goodness, of how God's man was was running the show and things were working well, and now potholes, taxes, mandates poorly applied, and they, they, they point us to this fact that, you know, God needs to be in charge. God's man needs to be in charge. And every time the people in, in Medo-Persia or the Babylonian, Babylon, the city of Babylon, the head of M- M- Medo-Persia now, they hit a pothole in the road. They'd be reminded of, man, if only God's man was in charge. That might be a more powerful, constant message to these people that God's the one who deserves glory. Mind it? As I think about my life and the situations that I live through and what I've seen, more often than not, I think that's the way things go. God doesn't step in with some miracle and and save somebody from certain death, there are a lot of times when things go wrong, when things are difficult, when things are challenging, and we realize, yeah, this is a world that is, just like God said, cursed by sin. And these people around me, these people including me, are also cursed by sin. And when we sin, and when we, we, we walk in that direction that we should not, we, we see what happens, don't we? We see how things go bad, and it reminds us what God said is true. That God's way is best. That we need to get back on track. And this is many Way, times how God teaches, how God is glorified. And we have plenty of examples of this in our own personal life. We could go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. Remember Hebrews 11? They call it the hall of faith. Talks about all of those uh, wonderful people from the Old Testament who, who lived for God, who were faithful, who died in their faith. And verse 36 expands on that. It talks about others suffered mocking and flogging. They were stoned, sawn in tune. That's two, killed with the sword. There's no way to make that good, is there? That whole sawn in two thing kind of gets me. But it says the world was not worthy of these people. And it's exalting those stories as stories, as things that glorify God, that exalt him, that lift him up in this world. That those people who the world was not worthy of, those righteous people who lived faithfully, the world turned around and they they murdered them They tortured them. They murdered them. And it says, that glorified God? What a lesson for the world. And we go, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. The flogging and then the killing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That is what happened to Jesus Christ. That is the gospel that glorifies God. Sinful world, overwhelmingly sinful world. A world that God has said, you know what? I will let you go in your own way. If you suppress truth, if you're going to, 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 to turn away from me, rebel, this is what you're in for, but I've still got my people in there. And Jesus Christ was first among those people. The first fruits, it says. And he suffered He was persecuted, and he suffered. He was beaten, tortured, and killed to pay for our sin. And we go, yeah, in that, we go, God can be glorified. God is glorified. The world world is, is given the opportunity for salvation because Christ paid for our sin on the cross. If it wasn't for the cross, where would we be? Where would you be? Where would I be? No hope. No hope whatsoever. But because Christ was willing to play that part in this world of sin, he won for us the right to be the children of God. And that was glorifying God, wasn't it? It is a God-glorifying gospel. And it doesn't matter. Death and sin cannot conquer the glory of God. And so even in this world where things go wrong, oftentimes that is the powerful message. Look, things are going wrong because people are turning from God. That's the nice general way of saying it. Steve Things are going wrong because you are turning from God. You're not walking with the Lord. Maybe you've had that situation in your life too, where things are going wrong and you realize, yeah, well, this is because I'm making decisions on my own. I'm not following the Lord. I'm not walking with Him. I'm not focused on Him. So I'm feeling guilty. Feeling like everything's falling apart. And maybe it's not so much that things would have been any different, but you realize in the middle of this, I'm not walking with the Lord. I don't feel like I'm close in close relationship with him. So as I go through these struggles, as I face these difficulties, I don't have this confidence that, hey, he's with me in this. He's by my side. It comes down to not just oh, picking the right thing, making the right decision all the time, but it's walking with the Lord and knowing, come what may, he is with me. I am with him. God glorifying tragedies. Do they happen? Yes, they do. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 1:12, what has happened to me has turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. All that tragedy. I mean he, he lists it in one passage. He talks about how many stonings. How many shipwrecks. How many times he was beaten. And he goes hey. This is the end of his life. Philippians. He's in jail. In Rome. Awaiting an eventual execution. And he says. Everything that happened to me. It was for the gospel. It was for God's truth. It glorifies him. It, it, it takes this message to more people that they can have an eternal relationship with God. Later in that chapter, he he says, whether by life or death. Remember that? I'm content. Life or death. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And then he says this at the end, and this is where it brings us right back, smack into the message of Daniel chapter six, second half. Only let your life, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. No matter what. Just keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. Your manner of life Make it a manner of life that's worthy. It's not talking about, I don't know, some sort of a religious, it's just saying, how are you living? Are you walking with the Lord? And we realize as Christians, when we get in these dilemmas, you've heard of that, we're on the horns of a dilemma. We're between a rock and a hard place. That is never the case For a Christian, we're always between the better or the best and the better, the better and the best. We're never, oh, we could lose or we could win. It's always, hey, I'm with the Lord. I'm in the best circumstance I can be in. I wonder what could be better. And maybe through this tragedy, through the difficulty we're going through, through the hardship we're facing, God is saying, I am going to show my glory in an incredible way. And we go, wow, God's going to use me for that? To glorify himself in this world? Hey, I'm willing to suffer for better. I'm in the best circumstance I could be in. I'm in Christ, but I'm going to suffer like Christ for better. And then it gets worse than that. And we die. Oh no, that's still better. Still better. And so we, we understand as a believer in Christ, somebody who's walking with the Lord, we're in the best circumstance we can ever get. In. We're in relationship with God. An eternal hope, a solid hope, an unchanging hope. And things will only get better. Even when they get worse. Because God will communicate his truth through our life. And we're servants, right? Servants happy when they're doing the will of their master. When they're used for some, the bigger the job, the better our situation. And there are a lot of times when bigger jobs are dirtier jobs, are harder jobs, are miserable jobs. We go, okay, God, show us how. We'll keep going forward with confidence in you. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Hold on to that. What is a life that's worthy of the of the gospel. Note that. We'll talk about it more. What of Daniel's deliverance? We've established that it's not necessary that Daniel be delivered to glorify God, but you all know that he was. Let's continue reading. Then at the break of day, the king arose. He went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near the den where Daniel was, He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angels, shut the mouths of the lions, and they've not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I've done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and he commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. No kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of the lions. They, their children, their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. That's a pretty grim image as we conclude that paragraph. But I want you to notice, and I'm not sure if you noticed, maybe you did read this passage through before before today, Did you recognize that God being glorified by the world in this passage, in all three paragraphs, it's the pagan king who makes a statement about God. Daniel does not have to say a thing. He's lived faithfully. And it's the pagan king who, at this point in time, again yells out, first time it was prayerfully, this time he cries out, and, and in seemingly in faith. It sounds like he's expecting Daniel to respond. Daniel's servant, listen to this, of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions. He calls God a living God, a God who is active, who is interacting with what is going on in the world. And he was a pagan king. Is this the God that we believe in? Is this the God that we represent, that we embody in the world? A God who we expect to act in situations. A God who we have confidence in, who we know will act. By life or by death, good or by evil. No matter what happens, we know, oh, well, God's going to act in this situation. His glory, fail safe, will be seen. It's guaranteed. I just have to walk worthy. I just have to be faithful. How can we do that? How can we be image bearers of this kind of a living God? And the king helps us with that answer. Because he points to Daniel and he says, this God who you served continually. And we think of Daniel and we think, well, what did that mean for him? Was it that he had an austere religious exterior that he had borrowed some Pharisees' gowns and he walked around you know, in sort of a ritualistic way. You think about it. Here Daniel is, he's in exile. He's not even in his Jewish society where there are all the the celebrations, the feasts, the sacrifices, those things that would make him feel like, I am a good guy, I'm a religious guy, I am on track with God. He was on his own in exile. And this God who he served continually, well, the, the evidence we have, yeah, he avoided the food in the beginning, but here we're talking about these praying three times a day. He takes three times a day where he, he goes to his room, opens his windows. This is a busy politician, you know. And he's lifting his eyes toward Jerusalem and he's Praying. He's talking with God. He was committed. Absolutely committed in relationship with God. There was a real relational faithfulness to God. It wasn't just the, you know, I'm going to, to pray three times. I'm gonna go do my prayer time. But he goes and he spends time with the Lord. A real relational faithfulness testifies of God's authentic reality when we're living with the living God. You see, we want people around us to know there's a living God. This is the question for us. Are we living with God? Are we living in relationship with Him? Is there something not ritualistic and religious, but a relational routine? What a challenge for you and me as we think about our lives. A relational routine where, yeah, I, I have that time, that special time, that I separate myself from what's going on in, in the world. But I'm busy. I've got so much to do today. I'm not like some Babylonian politician who has nothing to do <laughs> but run an entire country. I'm a father, a husband. I'm working. Got an important job. I'm a housewife. I'm a this, I'm a that. And I can't just separate myself and take some time and think about the Lord and talk to Him and hear from Him through His Word. Relational routine. what's the Lord calling you to do? What's the Lord calling me to do in terms of our relational routine? Not, I'm not talking about packing one thing on that, that, that's maybe a religious thing. That it, I'm talking relational thing. That's something that brings us into fellowship with the Lord because that is what God has always been about. There have been and are religious routines or religious things that, but the idea is to bring us in relationship. You know, we could say, "Well, <laughs> religious, religious rituals. I'm never going to go to church again if that's not necessary." But the idea for this is to bring us together into relationship corporately with the Lord. It's never been just to come in here and sing the songs and and study the scripture and you know say, "Boom! I've done my." my job, completed that task. No, it's where we come into relationship, we relate to God, and our fellowship, the relationship we have between each other, points us back in that direction again. What about individually? What about personally? How does the Lord look at it? Well, if we, we go back to the Sermon on the Mount again, Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. These are the people who are happy in life. Not the people who are just, you know, good Jews and doing, their, doing the things that good Jews do. But he says people who have this personal hunger and thirst after righteousness. They want more of God. Later on in the sermon, he, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness were to seek him. The New Testament authors, Paul in First Thessalonians 5.17 talks about praying without ceasing. Peter says, desire the sincere milk of the word. We start to get at what this this abundant life that Jesus talks about can be. What it is, what it's comprised of. It's not just when we do our set things that are, that are religious things, but it's that those things are relational things. And that the routines of our life are things that constantly point us back to God. That we're talking to God, praying without ceasing. That we're searching the word Lord lead me. I want to I meet with you. I want to hear from you. And as we go through our day we're talking about him because he's involved. We, we've been connecting with him all the way along. What if we had lives that were more routinely relational with the Lord? How would it change? You know probably. Because there are times when it's better than others, isn't it? There are times where we're more relational with the Lord, where we're more connected, we're in communion and fellowship with him. I know that's true for my life. You think just because I got the title of pastor that it's like a 100% full bore thing. No, it's up and down talking to somebody this week. One of you. <laughs> and he was talking about inconsistency in the Christian life. And I say, yeah, yeah, and I start talking about it. No, no, I don't think you understand what I mean. I say, well, no, 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 yeah, I see that. No, but, and it's like, don't you get it? We're all in the same struggle. And I think sometimes we look around us and we think, but that person doesn't have any trouble. But that person is always on. But no, we are simply saved sinners human beings that that are indwelt by the Spirit and struggling to figure out what that means. And here, the message here is that the most powerful thing, the thing that that changes a person's life, the thing that changes their testimony to others around them, the thing that impacts the world is a living, breathing, growing relationship with the living God. What did Daniel do that was so impressive? Oh, he was a good politician, but he served God continually. He was steadfast in his walk with the Lord. And here, whether he knew it, whether he understood it completely or not, the king of the whole empire, he was talking about this. He recognized that Daniel, uh, other times, who was it? It was Nebuchadnezzar before who said that. You know, you, Daniel, in whom is the spirit of God? I think one time, I think it was maybe Belshazzar's mother said, you know, he's got the spirits of God. And she didn't understand what it was, but she knows this guy's connected. And we think about that. And it's not as mysterious as we think. It's just challenging and difficult. You know how you get intimacy? Through intimacy. You know how you build togetherness? Through togetherness. And that's the simplicity of what God is offering us. You say, man, I wish I had a closer walk with the Lord. Well, walk closer with the Lord. Steve, can't you figure it out? It, it, it's that basic, but the thing that makes it unbasic is I don't really want to. I don't want to put in the work. I'll lose my autonomy. I won't be able to just say, "Well, this is what I want to do," and and seek contentment the way. Go to that verse in 1 Corinthians 15.58 where it talks about steadfastness. What is the extent of the impact of a steadfast life? Where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.58, your labor is not in vain. Be ye steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He says, your labor's not in vain. It's gonna gonna have an impact. It's gonna glorify God. You walk with him. Well, we see in the last paragraph one final statement about God from the head of state. Then King Darius, verse 25, wrote to all the people, nations, languages that dwell in the earth. He says, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and His dominion shall be. His sorry, and His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs one, and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, Cyrus, sorry, the Persian. And so he gives this final statement, but this time it's not just, you know, something he's crying out. It's not something that a few people in the area can hear, but the king is saying this to the entire empire, the then known world. And he says, peace be multiplied to you. Does he know what he's saying? I mean, he sounds like a Christian. Peace be multiplied to you, he says to the world, but he's not offering a peace to the world through his reign and rule. But he's talking about the Lord's. And we don't have any specific statement on the spiritual status of Darius the Mede. But he's doing the same thing here that Nebuchadnezzar did just before Nebuchadnezzar went into the seven years of insanity and came into a real relationship with God, isn't he? Nebuchadnezzar made a decree like this that nobody says anything bad about Daniel's God. And so here, Darius is doing the same thing. He's lifting up God and he's saying, you know, Daniel's God is real. He says he's the living God. He calls him the eternal ruler. And he he talks about how he's powerful and personal. Wouldn't you like to have a God like that? One who's living, interacting. He's eternal over all things and for, 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 forever. And he's powerful and personal. Is that the way we are living our life? Here we have another pagan ruler. He's he's at least figured it out theologically or theoretically or academically. This God is real. He works. But what about us, the children of God? Is that the reality that we're living in? He's a real God. He really works wants to be involved with you and with me in the situations of our life. He's open to have fellowship and communion with us. But we know sometimes we slide back into just an intellectual understanding of what we have, right? The ups and downs of the Christian life. But God's gospel, a relationship with Jesus Christ, offers us a joy-filled, peace-sharing, steadfast experience that displays his glory to the world around us. And you know how each chapter we've sort of been finding this word, this characteristic that, that we see somebody, a, a main character in the chapter, and, and they show that character. And we go, oh, but it's simply a reflection of God. And here it is here. I think it's this word steadfastness. More than just faithfulness, steadfastness has this idea of against a force we just keep going forward, doing the things that we are supposed to be doing, and that's Daniel. Doesn't matter about the law, he prays. God will be glorified, life or death. And then we recognize, that's our God. Our God is steadfast. That's how it's translated here. In some versions of the Bible, for he is the living God and he is steadfast. And we noted, we've noted that Daniel is steadfast in relationship, in fellowship with God. And so, as God is. Steadfast and as we're in relationship with him, we too can reflect his steadfastness. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. I was thinking of that passage in 1 John chapter 1. Where John says, John the last living apostle says this is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while well, we walk in darkness, we're lying. So we don't walk in darkness. Because if we're walking in darkness, we're lying and we're not practicing the truth. We may understand the truth, we may have received the truth, but we're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we're involved in that ongoing fellowship of relationship where we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's it. That's part of that fellowship walk with the Lord. We're dealing with sin. We're walking in obedience. We're listening to him because that's really the big thing that keeps us from fellowship with him. If I talked with God right now I'd have to deal with that thing that I just did that thing that I just said to somebody else or I come before him I feel guilty about you know where I fell short he knows he knows this is what it's all about we see here in John yeah he's light and We don't like to walk into the light, to have darkness exposed. But that is how we deal with the darkness. We deal with the sin. He deals with the sin. And then we can be lit up again. And go back out there and have an even more powerful impact, a greater opportunity to show his glory to the world. God is light. And we go back to that verse from Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. In that same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your who's in heaven. How will we have this impact? How will we reflect God's glory in the world? Steadfastness. Not religious rituals, but righteousness. And and that word sounds even too academic or spiritual. Relational routines. What is your relational routine? What is my relational routine with the Lord? Is it growing? What might the Lord be asking you to do? What more? What better? In terms of your prayer life, your, your constant communication or that special time that you take with him or, or your study of his word, your reading, what more, what better might he be saying, you just, why don't you add this in or do this or think more deeply about this? Because God is doing that. God wants to have fellowship with us. He wants us to be part of showing his glory in this world. Lord, we we see in your word in this story, we see how how it is foolproof, fail safe, this guarantee of your glory in the world. But we just don't want to stand back and see it appear at different times. We want to be a part of it. We realize that we've been called to be a part of showing your glory in the world. Not that we are special, but you are, and you've invited us into that. You've invited us to participate in that, but not just handling your glory. You've invited us into a relationship with you. And we see that in this great story that we think of as a religious tale, and we think of of Daniel as somebody who is Oh, way beyond any of us. We see it was his continual walk with you. His consistency. His steadfastness. In his relationship with you. That meant he was a man who impacted a king and a kingdom. Lord, help us Help us to to be where we should be right now in our own hearts and minds, looking and listening to you. Help us to hear from you. Help us to consider what needs to change in terms of our relationship. We do a lot of things, and we do a lot of things just by routine, and it's the routine of, of serving ourselves. But Lord, help us to consider what and how we should be doing what we're doing on a daily basis that we could walk more faithfully with you. Push back against the the world that encroaches into our life and be steadfast in a relationship with you. Pray, but not just to complete a prayer, fill the time, but as you did, Jesus, when you walked on this earth, you sought times to be in fellowship with the Father. Lord, we pray that would be our heart, that we would be able to encourage, No, that we would be able to first of all fellowship with you and then encourage one another as we fellowship with one another and then that there would be a lasting impact on the world around us. Simply because we have continually sought to be with you and serve you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you've called us into something that was beyond our understanding. But you've called us into something and, and expressed it and explained it through stories like this and you've shown us the simplicity that we can have intimacy with you by being intimate with you. We can be together with you by just spending time together with you. Help us to learn, help us to grow that your glory might be seen in the world. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.